Isaiah chapter 36. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And Eliakim the son of Hilkiah, and who, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came out to him. Shall we pray? Father, bless our time in your word this evening. Fill us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. And grant us, God, your wisdom to understand your word tonight. How great it is to know, Lord God, that your word is so high and important to you. Even above your name, your word says. And so we cherish, Lord, the opportunity to learn, to read, to study, to grow in your precious scriptures. Teach us what you would have us to know of this in Jesus' name. Amen. History, someone once said, teaches us that we learn nothing from history. This certainly may be the case when peoples and nations ignore the experiential lessons that have brought down empires for want of integrity. And there have been many like that. Empires led by by evil and wicked men. And at some point in time, they never learn that that kind of pride and that kind of arrogance will at one point in time bring them down. The historian Edward Gibbon writes, history is indeed little more than the register of the crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. Which also brings to mind the statement made by George Santayana who said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Now that we've had our little history lesson, let's realize that we're going into a great passage of history here. Something that is just, uh, that is really more than just the prophecy that we've been looking at through the last 35 chapters of Isaiah. And I say all of this about history because as we enter into this chapter, chapter 36, the focus turns to the historical events that were foretold to some degree already in the earlier prophecies of Isaiah concerning Assyria. A proud and an arrogant people who should have learned a lesson or two from other nations that laughed in the face of the God of Israel and eventually paid the consequences for their actions. But the main point of chapters 36 and 37, we're only covering 36 tonight, but the main point of of these two chapters is that God can and does fulfill His Word to His people. God can and does fulfill His Word to His people. He had told them on a number of occasions that the Assyrians would be defeated. Now very shortly, at least in our study of this book 
that promise would be fulfilled. So now it's showtime, you see. And the Assyrian army is camped outside the gates of Jerusalem. The year is about 701 B.C., 701 B.C., during the reign of the godly king Hezekiah of Judah. Hezekiah began his reign somewhere about 715. So in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, we put it about 701. And during the reign of this king Hezekiah, it was during this time that, that the Assyrians were moving southward towards Jerusalem having already conquered 46 cities in the northern parts of the southern kingdom of Judah. And so verse 1 is, is accurate in that it says that uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. That is, all of them until he gets to Jerusalem. You might remember that Hezekiah himself tried to cut a deal with the Assyrians not to invade. We talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago. But they were more than happy, and that is the Assyrians were more than happy to take the money and to attack anyway. That's the way they were. That was that issue of integrity I was talking about. They, did, they had none. <laughs> they were a proud, mighty, and arrogant army that uh, took whatever they wanted to take until they faced God. Now here's a great lesson. And a lesson for all of us is something that we learned through the mistakes of Hezekiah. But that lesson is that we should never make a deal with the world, the flesh, or the devil. We should never make any deals with the devil. We should never make any deals with the flesh or with the world itself. Because peace will never be found that way. The kind of peace that God wants to give His own people. And, I, and I've got to say that Hezekiah was a man after God's heart. He was a godly king, and, and it didn't come from his, from his being connected to his father Ahaz, because Ahaz was, was a, an ungodly king. But Hezekiah made a few mistakes in his life. And when you make those kind of mistakes, when you make those kind of deals with the world, the flesh, and the devil, peace will not be found. The only thing you'll find is devastation. And what God is trying to teach His people through these first 35 chapters of Isaiah is that He wants them to trust Him alone. To trust Him only. And the fact of the matter is, God wants us to trust Him alone and to trust Him only. So verse 1 of our text then is the fulfillment of the prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 7. So I'd like for you to go back and review this with me. Isaiah chapter 7 verses 16 and 17. There, the prophecy that had been given actually to, uh, at the time to uh, Hezekiah's father Ahaz. It says, For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you. Now notice that it says that the Lord will bring uh, the, the uh, king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house. Days that have not come since the day of that Ephraim departed from Judah. And so... Here again it's saying that just like the northern kingdom had departed from the Lord and were being judged for it, eventually that same judgment would come upon the southern kingdom. And it was on its way. And Ahaz was given an opportunity to trust in the Lord, but he did not want to. And we'll get to that in a moment as well. But in verse 2 of our text, the king of Assyria sends his Rabshakeh. That's, that's going to be the word for tonight, Rabshakeh. 
It's not really a name, it's a title. But this is what is written here in our particular text. It's, uh, he's, he's kind of like the chief of staff. He's, he's the spokesman for Sennacherib the king. And so here we're told in chapter uh, 36, verse 2, that uh, the king of Assyria sends his Rabshakeh, which, by the way, is, a, uh, you know, again, it, it's, it's not a name. So there are some people who, cons- who think it's a name, or in some translations that make it sound like it's a name, but it's not. But then he doesn't send just the Rabshakeh, he sends along half of the Assyrian army from Lachish. Now, Lachish was 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And he sends all of them, the half of the army and uh, uh, the Rabshakeh to Jerusalem. His whole purpose now, as, you, as we shall soon see, and this is a very important thing and point that you don't want to miss, but his whole purpose of sending his Rabshakeh and this army up to the gates of Jerusalem was to break the spirits of the children of Judah. It was to break the spirits of the children of Judah with... Uh, Psychological warfare, that's really the best way to put it. Uh, Through psychological warfare, so that instead of fighting, the the children of Judah would just surrender. You know, just all this talk, you know, that is going to be given into the minds. You know, this psychological stuff goes on all the time as far as the way people talk and and and, and uh, you know some sometimes even we in, in the United States are being accused today of, of uh, you know of, of using psychological tactics against those that are in Guantanamo and, and so on and so forth uh, you know, but all that is is to get information as, as as it were but you know how it is today in the politically correct world in which we live and so in verse 3 then Hezekiah sent out his representatives who stood on the walls of the city by the aqueduct from the upper pool. And that was an interesting place. This is an important thing for this place to be mentioned here by Isaiah. It was an interesting place for Hezekiah himself to be, because it was the very same place where his father, Ahaz, failed an important test before the Lord. I had you look at Isaiah 7. I hope you're still there, because in Isaiah 7, verses 3 and 4, we see that test that Ahaz failed. It says, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now, or go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Yashub your son, uh, the son of Isaiah, whose name meant uh, the, the remnant, or the return, or the remnant, the remnant shall return, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool. So at the very same place, you see, on the highway to the fuller's field, And say to him, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. This is what God is saying to this king. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of residents here in the son of Remaliah. We don't want to go all the way back and look at that part. But the fact of the matter is, it is where he was given this encouragement not to fear, not to be faint-hearted. And Ahaz rejects God's care. Ahaz rejects God's desire to be his strength in all of this. Ahaz had been encouraged to trust in the Lord, but he refused to do so. Can you imagine that? Now we talked about that back in chapter 7, I don't know how long ago. 
But it just, it just brings back this, this thought that God wants us to trust Him, but too often we, we reject that. Why? That we can figure things on our own is better than what God gives us as far as wisdom is concerned, or as far as, as, as strength is concerned, or as far as trust is concerned? That we can do better than the Lord? Instead of trusting in the Lord, what did Ahaz do? Instead of trusting in the Lord, he sought an alliance with guess who? With Assyria. The same nation that has been eating up, eating up, eating up other nations all along the way from the east as they're moving west, going along and taking all of these places, taking Damascus and coming right around, taking the northern kingdom of Israel, taking uh, uh, all, all of these places. And he wants to make an alliance with him instead of trusting in the Lord. And by the way, that eventually proved to be a big mistake. And Hezekiah, his son, who wasn't anything like his father, also showed signs of weakness, though he was godly. Now, to some extent, that's really an encouragement to us. Because we want to be godly before God, but we, we have to be careful. We need to keep our hearts right before the Lord each and every day. and We need to trust the Lord every day. I can tell you this, God is not out to fool you. The enemy is out to fool you. But God is not out to fool you. And when He says you can trust Me, trust Him. Trust Him with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge God in all of your ways and He'll direct your paths. That's what it says in Proverbs chapter 3. Not a hard thing. But the flesh oftentimes works very hard against that. The spirit against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. It's an everyday battle that we have. And Ahaz sought to appease the Assyrians. I'm sorry, Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah later on seeks to to appease the Assyrians by giving them, guess, guess what he wants to give them? Silver and gold. And again, I'm just saying this in review because we've gone over this before. But he wants to give them the silver and the gold from the temple. And he does so. And so the victory from retaking the test for Hezekiah was to come. Hezekiah failed a test before the Lord. And a, and, and a new test is coming. Aren't you glad that God oftentimes gives us those tests to retake? That's better than our schools sometimes. Okay, you've got to retake this test again. Okay. Are you going to trust me? Yeah. Okay, do so. Trust me. And so Hezekiah is given this other opportunity. Would he learn from history? Would he learn from the mistakes of his father? Now one more thing concerning the historical importance of that place called Lachish before we move on. Archaeologists have discovered a pit there in Lachish, 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. They have, they have discovered a pit there where the remains of about 1,500 casualties of Sennacherib's attack and siege of the city were found. Not only that, but there were carvings, carvings by the Assyrians that laid out this whole historical uh, uh, tome of what took place at that time. And folks, that just tells us that the Bible is accurate, and it was always true. A lot of people say, well, the Bible's not accurate. Yes, it is. You just got to dig deep, and you'll see. So we, we ourselves as believers, we take God's Word. 
because we know he's true. Whether we dig it up or not, we trust what God says. But if you want proof, they're digging all these places up. They're there. So now getting back to Isaiah 36, look at verses 4 through 6. Now that we see this, this meeting here is taking place outside of this, uh, this aqueduct. And they're on, on the aqueduct on the walls of, of the city of Jerusalem. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah. In other words, he's telling these representatives of Hezekiah the king, Say this to Hezekiah. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, speaking of Sennacherib, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? What confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans of power for war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans... It will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. So what he's saying is you're trusting in Egypt. Remember that Hezekiah was trying to... It wasn't really Hezekiah, but many of his advisors were wanting him to have this alliance with Egypt so that they could stand against Sennacherib and Assyria. And the fact is that as a representative of the king of Assyria, the Rabshakeh was mocking these people for trusting in empty words. He was mocking the children of Judah for trusting in empty words. Because he knew that their army would just wipe out the Egyptian army easily. He had certainly done his homework. They were indeed people in Hezekiah's courts who were trusting in Egypt. Now we've covered, like I said, this, uh, this ground in previous studies in Isaiah. But now, please note that what the Rabshakeh says about Egypt is true. They won't be of any help. But that's what Isaiah said also. That's what Isaiah said. Go back a, couple, a few chapters, Isaiah 31, verse 3. Isaiah, Isaiah had already told them. He says, now the Egyptians are men and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, both he who helps will fall, and he who is helped will fall down. They will all perish together. Don't trust in Egypt. Don't trust in Egypt's uh, chariots. Don't trust in Egypt's horses. Trust in God. So Isaiah the prophet gives that message to, to the children of Judah. Now the Rabshakeh comes up and he says, Hey, these, these Egyptians, you're going to try to lean against it? Like if you're leaning on something that's strong, but that thing is so thin. I mean, you know, their, their, their strength is all so thin. But if you lean against that thing as, a, as a, some kind of a staff, it's going to go right through your hand. In other words, it's going to pierce you. It's going to hurt you more than help you if you lean uh, and trust in Egypt. And so the Rabshakeh's motive in saying this about Egypt, and please understand this as well, but the Rabshakeh's motive in saying this about Egypt is not to turn Judah to a firm trust in the Lord. It isn't to say, well, listen, you should have been listening to God anyway, so go trust in your Lord. That's not what he's trying to tell them to do. His motive is to completely demoralize Judah and drive them to despair. Here's the psychological warfare. You lean against Egypt, we're going to wipe them out. And if we wipe them out, we're going to wipe you out. That's how strong we are. Isn't this how Satan attacks us every day? 
Listen carefully. Isn't this how Satan attacks us every day? Even when he tells the truth about us, because he was telling, you know, Rabshakeh was telling the truth about Egypt. But even when, when, when the enemy tells the truth about us, haven't you heard it from him? I mean, maybe not, not uh, you know, uh, audibly or whatever, but, you know, how often does, does the enemy speak into your heart and say, you're just a rotten sinner. I mean, you're just rotten to the core. You stink. You call yourself a Christian. Look at you. Look at the things you're doing. You know, and he just, you know, pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds. How God is not going to, you know, he's not going to support you. Look at you. You're walking away from the Lord. Oh, you're just a rotten sinner. Does he, does he not do that to us? Does he not try to demoralize us? Does he not try to put us into some kind of discouragement or despair? Why is it that sometimes we as Christians are so ineffective in this life as, uh, that we're supposed to be walking in faith? We're so ineffective because we listen to that enemy of ours. You thought I was going to say something else. We listen to that enemy of ours. The last thing that he wants to do is to lead us to the truth of God's mercy. The last thing he wants to do is lead us to the, the truth of God's grace, to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the last place he wants us to go. That's when we stop coming to church. That's when we stop praying. That's when we stop reading the Bible. That's when we stop helping others and we start just concentrating on ourselves. That's what happens. And then the enemy for that battle wins. There's some spiritual truths here that we don't want to miss out on. He needs to stir our hearts here. This is not just a history lesson. Though it is one. God is saying, you need to trust in me. And you need to trust in the promises I've made for you. I have forgiven you of your sins. If you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. So that you can stand up. I'll pick you up and I'll move you on. So you can continue to walk for me. Are you willing to trust the Lord when you find yourself in those times of struggle? Are you willing to trust the Lord and walk with the Lord beyond the failures, the falterings that we, that we oftentimes encounter? But now, the Rav Shaka speaks against Judah's trust in God. So he's, he's starting to get a little bit uh, more bold here. Okay, follow along the progression of what's taking place. Verse 7, look at what he says in verse 7. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now, he told the truth about Egypt. But now he's starting to mix in lies. There's a question as to whether the Rabshake was speaking of things that he knew nothing about, or if he was in fact lying to them as the enemy of our souls lies to us. You know, the enemy is cunning, isn't he? The enemy is cunning. Tricky. He has to be. Genesis 3 verse 1 tells us that. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God has made. 
or had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Has he really said that? Did he really say that? Jump down to verse 4. It says the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You know, after she tells him, well, this is what he said to us. Oh, you shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. See the kind of lies? You see the kind of deceit that the enemy tries to pull over our eyes? Much later on, Jesus really pegged him. John chapter 8, verse 44, he's speaking to those that were opposing him. He says, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And I mention these particular things about the enemy because we're beginning to see a lot of, uh, of certain similarities in what is, the Rabshakeh is saying to, uh, to the children of Judah here. And what this Rabshakeh was saying to Judah was that their own king destroyed the worship places of God. He says, your own king Hezekiah destroyed the worship places of God. Now, is that true? No. What did he destroy? He destroyed the very things that were in opposition to God. But he's getting it into their minds. He destroyed your worship places, and so how could they look to their God for help? How can you look to God? He destroyed your worship places and told you you could only worship in Jerusalem. That's the only place. So, in fact, Hezekiah destroyed the pagan worship places and even the worship of God on the altars that they had erected. In other words, they were worshiping God in a pagan way along with worshiping Baal and along with worshiping Molech and along with worshiping the Ashtoreths. But those were the high places that Hezekiah destroyed because God was angry because they were not worshiping Him any longer in the right way. And so in reality, he tore down the altars to Molech, to Baal, and to the Ashtoreth. Consider the good, consider the good that Hezekiah did for his people. You see, what is the enemy doing? He's trying to tell them, listen, he who is good is not so good. What did the enemy tell Eve? Did God say that? Did God really say that? You're not going to die. That's a lie. He's calling God a liar. Rav Shakeh is calling God a liar here. For he says, well, this Hezekiah, how can you trust him? He's tearing down where you worship. But they should have known. Those high places were what exactly what God wanted to be torn down. So that we could worship him in the right place in Jerusalem. I want you to consider the good that Hezekiah did for his people. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 29. Second Chronicles chapter 29, beginning at verse 3. Notice what he did for them. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. In other words, they hadn't been worshiping in, in the temple. It was Hezekiah who opened the doors for them to come in to worship God once again. Verse 4. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites. Listen to this 
He says, now sanctify yourselves. In other words, set yourselves apart. Sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers. In other words, set the house of the Lord God of your fathers apart. And carry out the rubbish from the holy place. In other words, get the rubbish out of that temple. And folks, the Bible tells us as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right here, the heart of every believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But too often we've got so much rubbish in it, we need to get the rubbish out. Because we're no longer worshiping, because we've got too much, too much rubbish in there. Then we begin to focus on our own selves. We begin to focus on our flesh. We begin to focus on the things that matter only to our flesh and not to our spirit. And it's time to get the rubbish out, you see. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken Him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on Him. What is he saying? He said, he's saying, look, we need to go worship the Lord once again. Let's clean this place and worship God. Jump down to verse 27 in the same chapter, Second Chronicles 29, verse 27. Then Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering on the altar. They hadn't been offering all, uh, sacrifices to the Lord, but now he says, offer the burnt offering on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of, of Israel. What is, these, what is it saying? They weren't worshiping God. They weren't giving God praise. But now they were. He was doing a good thing for his people. So all the assembly worshipped, the singers sang and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. What is he saying? What did he do? He brought them back to the Word of God so that they began to read the Psalms and sing the songs as they had done before, but they hadn't done any longer because they were starting to worship other gods. But now they were worshiping God once again. So they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and worshiped. And then Hezekiah answered and said, Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. What, what have they not done? They hadn't even thanked the Lord anymore. You see what happens when we get far from God? We don't worship Him, we don't honor Him, we don't praise Him, and we don't thank Him. So the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, and as many as were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. And that willing heart, I would underline that in your Bible, that is what we need when we come to worship the Lord, a willing heart unto God. A clean, pure, willing heart that says, Lord God, it's not about me. It's not about us. It's not about flesh. It's about you receiving all the praise and the honor and the glory that you're worthy of. And not only in this place, but wherever I go, I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. I need to be set apart for you. Second Chronicles 30, verse 1, notice it says, And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah, and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. And that was coming back to what they hadn't done any longer. And then he reaches out to his, his enemy brothers, as it were, the northern kingdom, said, Come and let's worship God together again. Trying to open that door of, of reconciliation. Look at uh, 2 Chronicles 31 now, verse 1. It says, Now when all this was finished, 
All Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke the sacred pillars in pieces. They went out and, and, and got rid of all of these idol place, places of worship. Uh, it says they broke the sacred pillars in pieces, cut down the wooden images, and threw down the high places and the altars from all Benj- uh, Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh until they had utterly destroyed them all. And then all the children of Israel returned to their own cities, every man to his possession. You've got to work on the heart. You've got to commit your heart. Give your heart to God in worship. Give your heart to God to, in praise. And then tear down those things that separate you from loving and worshiping and honoring God. But you see, in Rabshakeh's thinking, getting back to our text in, in um, Isaiah chapter 36. In Rabshakeh's thinking, though, the more altars you have, remember, he's a pagan. The more altars you have, the more your God will like you. So that was another reason from his thinking that he says, your king Hezekiah tore down all those places of worship. Well, God doesn't like that. He wants all kinds of places for you to worship. But you see, they weren't being obedient any longer once they started worshiping on those high places. And this is one of the enemy's tactics today. This is one of the enemy's tactics today. There are those today who have a problem with a concept that Jesus is the only way to God. That Jesus is the only way. And I have to tell you, that's even inside the church. It is even inside the church. Even the emergent church leaders, this emergent church movement that's going on today, I don't have, I don't have time to get into all kinds of details. I've talked about it before. But even emergent church leaders are calling Bible believers narrow-minded now. Says so you're too narrow-minded. You need to realize there's, there's other ways to the Lord. There's other ways to God. We, we have to become relevant to the society. We have to become relevant to the way you know culture is and, 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 and philosophy is and the way people are thinking. That we have to get to that point where no, you know. Uh, let me give you one reason why we need to be narrow-minded. You want to know why it is? Why we need to be narrow-minded? I'll give you one reason from Scripture. Jesus said in John 14:6, "I am the way. I am the way." He is not saying, I am just one of many ways. I am the way. I am the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except to me. Jesus himself is saying, be narrow-minded about this. Do not go out and then begin to say, well, you know, you've got to have the love of Christ, but, but also, you know, there's so many other different ways. No, there's only one way. And if you go the wrong way, you're, you're going to find yourself far from God. Because he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Rabshake is saying, listen, you had all of your ways to God, but now they're gone. No, that's the, that's the, that's the lie of the enemy today in the church. So the Rabshake continues with his put-down of the children of Judah. This is psychological warfare, as it were. Isaiah 36, verse 8. Now therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses, if you're able on your part to put riders on them. He says, give me a pledge. Make your pledges now. Dial 555. 66, 66. 
Dial. Make your pledge today. And we'll give you 2,000 horses. If you got anybody that can ride them without falling off. That's actually what he said. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for, for chariots and horsemen? You see, the continued arrogance of the Assyrians keeps coming out in the Rabshakeh's words. When you think you have the upper hand in a situation, it is easy to put down others, isn't it? If you think you've got the upper hand in everything, you can put down people all the time. So this guy is in effect telling them that if they pay a tribute to Sennacherib, they will in turn give 2,000 horses. All they would have to do is find riders that won't fall off those horses. It's a put down. And I have to tell you, the Jews didn't know much about horses. If the king himself rode a donkey, they didn't know anything about horses. Why do you think they went to Egypt? Because Egypt had the horses and the horsemen. The Jews didn't know anything about horses. Just donkeys. You ever seen a donkey race? Well, that's enough. See, the Jews uh, weren't known for their equestrian skills. <laughs> they didn't know how to ride horses. And so this was another put-down, you see, to make them give up. That's the whole idea. Make them give up. We could beat you with one hand tied behind our backs. That's what he's saying to them. We'll even give you the horses. No, I'm sorry, sir, you're riding it backwards. You see, we'll beat you, you know, I mean, with one hand tied behind our backs, we'll beat you. So look at verse 10 now. Have I now come up, uh, up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? Let me say that again. Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. You see, here's the next progression. The best has been saved for last. It's time to give up, he says to them. Your God is no longer on your side. Your God is actually on my side. He told me to come and destroy you. Now, this was a half-truth. If you remember when we read back in, 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 earlier on in Isaiah, God was going to use Assyria to discipline, to chastise his people, to correct his people. That part was true. But isn't this also how Satan works? With half-truths? He gets us to doubt God's love. He gets us to doubt God's love for us, and thus we give up. We begin to doubt God's love and when we stop trusting, we stop loving Him, we stop serving Him. Your God's on our side now. It's not on your side. I don't care about you anymore. He's going to bury you. You guys have been stinky anyway, so you might as well just bury you all. This kind of psychological warfare is grueling, but it is effective. That is why we need God's truth to dispel the lies of the enemy. This is why we need to stay in God's word 
and know God's word because we need to dispel the work of the enemy and the lies of the enemy. How do we do it? Because we know the word of God. There's a great picture of that in the New Testament. When Jesus was out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, the enemy came to tempt him. And every time that he tempted Jesus with something, the Lord came back with the Word of God. The Word of God. The Word of God. Can we do the same? Are we able to look the enemy straight in the eye and say, but God's Word says. You say this, but God's word says. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We have to be ready with God's word to dispel the lies of the enemy. Let's not forget the words of Paul. It is a grueling time when the enemy comes out against us. But look at in Romans chapter 3. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8, verse 37 through 39. Paul says this, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, it is a lie when the devil says that God doesn't love you anymore. It is a lie when we begin to doubt the love that God has for us. The Bible says it very clear here. Nothing, nothing, no one, no how, nowhere, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Aren't you glad for that tonight? Aren't you thankful for that tonight? Praise God for that. Stand upon that. Don't move from that. Why? Because God loves you. He's going to take you through these trials. He's going to take you through the storms. He's going to take you through those those tribulations and those times of temptations. We cannot do it without Him. So can you imagine a whole nation trying to do this without God? Look at verse 11. In verse 12 it says, Then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Oh, please, please speak to your servants in the Aramaic language, for we understand it. (laughs) <laughs> this is an interesting thing. They, they, they knew Aramaic. They knew actually the language of the Assyrians. And, and do not speak to us in Hebrew. A, an interesting thing. The Assyrians knew the Hebrew language. This is all strategic, by the way. Got to know what your enemy's thinking. Got to know what your enemy's saying. But the Rabshakeh is using Hebrew. Why? For the psychological warfare. And so he says, do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. The people who are gathering together. What's going on here? Have you ever told your kid, don't touch that hot stove? And they go, ah! They do it anyway? The rough shock is going to do it. You say, I'm just preparing you for what he's going to do. The Rav Shake said, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Uh, that's, a nasty, that's a nasty verse. But the thinking of these, of these leaders was, it's bad enough that we have to hear this stuff and since he's speaking Hebrew, everyone's going to hear and soon the whole city is going to be discouraged and they'll rise up against us and make us surrender. That's exactly his, his desire. That is exactly why he's speaking to them in Hebrew. 
The Reb Shake wanted it that way. He could care less if the common citizen hurt him. In fact, the more fear and discouragement he could spread to everyone, the better it was for the Assyrians. So he also wanted to gross everyone out who heard him to magnify the fear should they attack with an extended siege because every one of the citizens of Jerusalem would then be hungry and thirsty and reach a point of eating their own waste. That is exactly what it says. That is exactly what it says. And that is another strategic move on their part to be at that aqueduct. Why? Because that aqueduct was the only way that water was getting into the city and they were prepared to cut it off. They were prepared to leave them needing, you know, food and water to the extent that they would even eat their own waste and drink their own waste. They knew what they were doing. Verse 13 and following says, Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew, and he said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. You see, they were, they were told, Please don't speak in Hebrew. Oh yeah, well here, watch this. And he speaks more in Hebrew. Why? This is just this is the nature of people who want to you know, get their way. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. In other words, don't listen to your king. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present and come out to me. And every one of you eat from his own vine, and every one from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. A land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Listen, you come to me, I'll give you good places. I'll give you places to eat, and play, so you won't have to eat your own waste and all of that. Now, the Rabshakeh's intention was to glorify the enemy facing God's people. To glorify the enemy facing God's people. He says, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. His speech was intended to make the Lord's people doubt their leaders. He said, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. His speech was intended to build fear and faithlessness in the children of Judah. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. His speech was intended to make surrender an attractive option. He said, make peace with me, and every one of you will eat from his own vine. Make peace with me. He was trying to get them to turn against their king to surrender with the promise of a better life. But that simply was not true. It was not true. Because after they would surrender, the people would be split up, and they would be relocated in another land. And the reason would be so that they would no longer rebel. They would be in captivity. How many times does the enemy promise you wonderful things? And when you put the things of the Lord aside and you go to those wonderful things, you find them to be so empty, so lacking. There may be that initial desire. There may be that, that initial, oh man, satisfaction. But then all of a sudden it just dies. Or maybe down a ways a bit, it, it dies. Then you begin to realize, that was a trap. It was a trap of the enemy. The enemy said, I could have all of this. But it wasn't true. And your heart sink because you walked away from God. And you didn't trust in the Lord. 
And again, isn't this how the enemy works? He wants you to give up. He wants you to give in with a promise that things will be better and easier if we do. But they never are easy, are they? They never are easy. And what we see in this passage here, folks, listen carefully. What we see in this passage is an earlier policy. The ancient policy of ethnic cleansing. Have you ever heard that phrase? It is the ancient policy of ethnic cleansing and forced resettlement. It is, by the way, not what the Israelis are doing today, but what many of the Arab countries are doing. And many Muslim countries are doing. But not the Israelis. But this is what they're being accused of. These are phrases popular on the evening news, but practiced in those days by the Assyrians. Let's read on because we're almost done here. Beware, verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Now notice verse 20. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? At this point, the Rabshakeh's intention was now to destroy the people's trust in God. He says, the gods of the other nations haven't been able to protect them against us. Your God is just like one of them and can't protect you either. It would be at this moment that Judah could have started to plan for their victory celebration. It was at this very moment that Judah could start planning their victory celebration. Because it's one thing to speak against Judah. It's one thing to speak against the power of Judah and the, and the alliances of Judah with Egypt and whatnot. It's one thing to speak against Judah. It was another thing altogether to mock the Lord God of Israel in this manner and portray Him as just another God. It is another thing totally. You see, God has made Himself very clear. Isaiah 43, verses 10 and following says, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am He, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? That's what God says about Himself. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, He says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Isaiah 45, 18 says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. The Lord will no longer let Assyria off the hook on this one. The Lord is long-suffering, but there comes a time when judgment is inevitable. 
Consider Psalm 7, verses 9 through 12. He says, Oh, let the wickedness, the psalmist says, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend his bow and make it ready. At one given point, God is going to judge the wickedness of this world. And, you know, and he's been long-suffering, but there is coming a time when that judgment is, is going to happen. Especially those who have mocked God and mocked his power in the very face of his own people. And here was the response of Hezekiah's leaders to the Rabshakeh. Here's the response. Isaiah 36, verse 21 and verse 22. But they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. In other words, let him speak. Do not argue with him. Do not get into any contentions with him. Stay silent. Do not speak. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, told him the words of the Rabshakeh. They tore their clothes. Why? They were in mourning over what was apparently about to happen. But understand that there was no reason to argue with the Rabshakeh. Instead, they just kept silent. They just kept silent. Some people want to fight against the devil. Ever, ever heard those people? Some people want to fight against the devil. They want to converse with him. They want to even dialogue with him. But that's foolish, folks. It's foolish. Some people want to talk with the devil. They don't even spend time speaking to the Lord, you know. They even spend more time speaking to the Lord and shut their mouths when they think that they're going to do something grand in confronting the, uh, the devil. It's foolish, you see. More people should hand over their cause to God. That's what we do. When we go in prayer to the Lord, Lord, here's my cause. I, I don't have the power. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the strength to, to do these things. Here's the cause. Keep silent and let the word of God defeat the enemy as well as comfort our hearts and our lives. Proverbs 10:19 says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. In James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, he says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift, to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But the quietness of the heart before the Lord does a lot better for us. Things were going to be hard once Hezekiah learns the truth. But the battle wasn't lost yet, you see. The battle wasn't lost yet. They needed to commit their cause to God just as we are to commit our cause to the Lord as well. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9, this is what Paul says about his ministry. He says, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Isn't that the way it is for us sometimes? We go through those struggles, and, 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 and we're sometimes perplexed. Oh God, why is this happening? What, what, you know, we, we take a couple of steps back to look at the whole picture. We say, Lord, what is, this, 
what is, what is going on here? Why are these things happening? Why are these unexpected events taking place? And then we bow our heads to the Lord and say, Lord God, as much as I'd like to know, I've got to leave it with you. Give me wisdom to deal with this issue. Give me strength. Give me words when I need to give words. And keep me silent when I need to be silent. But Lord, you take my cause. A little later on, and I'm going to close with this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Just a few verses down, Paul says this. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, was but, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary. The Assyrians and their army, the things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen, the eternal and mighty God, are eternal. They, the Rabshake took one step too many. The enemy has taken one step too many. And all you have to do is read the book of Revelation to know that his fate, his destiny is sealed in the purposes and the plan of God. The enemy can, 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 can uh, confuse you if you let him. He can perplex you if you let him. He can scare you. He can cause fear in you. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Greater is the God that we serve. It was a tremendous history lesson here. But the Assyrians didn't learn from history. They didn't learn about the Egyptians who laughed in the face of God and mocked God. Their armies were destroyed when they came to destroy Israel. Time and again, God proved himself strong for his people. The Bible says that God never changes. He will always be strong for those whose hearts are loyal to him. Let's be loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if that's the case, then when Jesus said, I am the way, the only way, I am the truth, I'm the only truth, I am the life, I'm the only life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray.